Stuff Podcasts. Previously on The Commune. There was Potter sitting in the office taking tea and bickies. Potter was sitting there like the cat had got the cream. There'd be a pack of you, like a little wolf pack. It seemed to me like it was a good opportunity to open up a Pandora's box and see what was inside. This episode of The Commune contains strong language and descriptions of drug-taking and sexual abuse. The day that Barry clicked. The day that she started to realise she'd been sold a lie. The day she started listening to her instincts about what was happening with the Centrepoint children. It was all because of a book. Right, I'm only just picking this book up again and my memory of it was there was a paper that just jumped out at me. When we first interview Barry, she hasn't actually seen a copy of this book for decades. But when we visit again some weeks later, she's just received a second-hand copy that she's bought online. And now she's flicking through, trying to find the exact page that she found so life-changing back in 1985. I know there was a furor in the States when the book came out. And, and Here's what happened. Len, he was the psychology graduate and Centrepoint member who would eventually write a book about how great Centrepoint was, he became aware of an American researcher called Larry Constantine. Because Constantine had published a book that seemed to jibe with some of the views held at Centrepoint. Well, he'd compiled a book of different papers and some were kind of advocating for sexual freedom. A copy got passed around the commune. And yeah, this is the same book we talked about with the American child abuse expert Dr David Finkelhor back in an earlier episode. He wrote one of the papers in it. This book was being read (laughs) down the hierarchy, so, you know, Bert had read it and some of the senior therapists had read it. Like I said earlier, the book is a real mix. Dr. Finkelhor's article was a solid academic piece looking at sibling incest in California. But some of the other papers and some of the conclusions were pretty shocking. There's a paper in it where a girl was describing that she'd had an incestuous relationship with her father and it wasn't until she got to school that she realised this wasn't okay. And so this was being talked about by the seniors in the therapy group. So this proves it's society that makes it wrong, but it was really, really natural. It almost sounded like this was the kind of supposed evidence that Bert Potter might point to in arguing that early sexual experiences were absolutely marvellous for children. Barry wanted to read it for herself. But when she did... And it was just like... And then different children would show up in my mind. You know, this child, I've had my eye and this child's not okay. This is what's happening. This is the harm. This is what I'm seeing. When it comes to the point of saying, am I prepared to really look at my basic beliefs and all the cherished ideas I've had and I've been taught and cultured over the years, Can I look at them and be prepared to let them go and change them? Conditions do change. There's no way that you can stop social change from happening. But what we can do is look at ourselves and say, what can I do for myself in this? How can I change my own outlook? Can I stop looking for this great answer out there? 
I'm Adam Dudding, and this is The Commune. Episode 7, Cherished Ideas. Right, th- this book is Children and Sex, New Findings, New Perspectives, edited by Larry Constantine and Floyd Martinson. And it was published in 1981, but it, in my recollection, it didn't come into the community until about 1985. And Len found it in his um, studies at university. 1985. Barry has been a Centrepoint member for seven years. She's been wrestling with her concerns about the commune's children for ages. But now, weirdly, in a book which contains discussion of the sexual liberation of children, she's found the exact opposite message from the one that Bert seems to have found. It was being read and talked about by all the people up the hierarchy from me and so I was hearing about this book as it absolutely justifies everything we're doing there's no harm to children it's good for children and so eventually it came down the hierarchy and I got hold of it She reads it and sure you can see why Bert would like it there's an article about the children of northern India's Muria tribe who supposedly lose their virginity around the age of six and supposedly do just fine. There's an article which claims that many children have perfectly happy memories of a sexual relationship with an adult, and it's only when they get talking to police or psychologists or other interfering busybodies that they start showing the signs of trauma. But there are also the more mainstream articles in there, and these are the ones that Barry was clocking. David Finkelhor's paper on sibling incest a study looking at the importance of large age gaps, discussions about what consent could possibly mean if you're talking about a young child and an adult. It elaborated where the harm comes. The bigger the age difference, the more harm. The bigger the power difference, that the child can't say no. And as it went through, I thought, this, this is it. And it just, for the first time, I felt like I've got some knowledge. I've not got people telling me I'm blocked off, I um, need to go and look at my own pain. As Barry saw it, Centrepoint was an experiment, a process of trying new things in the hope of finding better ways to live. But when you're doing experiments, you meant to follow evidence, not dogma. And a, a scientific experiment takes in everything, it doesn't just pick out the bits that suit. And here was some proper science of the kind Barry could point to, with footnotes and citations and articles that had been collated from proper academic journals. Scattered through this book was evidence that child sex was harmful, and that matched the evidence that had been unfolding in front of her every day at Centrepoint. Yes, and that was it for me. It's not my opinion, It's and it makes sense, and everything, all the harm conditions are here, and they're happening in front of my eyes. Centrepoint's connection to this book actually went a little further. One of the book's editors, Larry Constantine, visited the commune a few times. Barry says that during one of his later visits, he said something that she took as a kind of warning. This happened, where else, in the communal showers. And I was once in the shower with Larry, like he'd came in, you know, (laughs) several shower heads, and he said to me, basically, sort of, this won't bode well if Centrepoint keeps going like this. 
the silver lining to communal showering is <laughs> something about warm water and, um, and a wall around you. I just remember leaving the shower with the idea from him that if Centrepoint continues down this track, it's just not going to go well. We've tried to contact Larry Constantine, but have had no luck. Barry describes that moment of reading the Larry Constantine book as an epiphany. Just epiphany. So, she now understands that child sex is actually harmful, and she wants to do something about it. Sex abuse needs to stop in the community. Okay, so she'll be straight off to the police, right? No. She and a couple of other women in the community form a committee. You know, we talked a lot and we just decided to form this committee that any of the children that had concerns could come to us and we would address issues and bring them up in the community. A committee for addressing issues. Again, hindsight is twenty twenty, but this seems so odd. Barry, even the newly enlightened post-Epiphany Barry, is responding to a culture of child sex abuse not by leaving and taking her children with her, not by calling the police. No, she organises a committee and instigates a low-key, private conversation within the community, apparently in the hope of tidying things up. She's not 100% on Team Centrepoint anymore, but she's not exactly tearing the place down. At least, not yet. As Barry and a few others begin a rather tentative revision of Centrepoint's sexual culture, Bert Potter appears to take absolutely no notice. He's got other fish to fry. It's the mid-80s, remember? He's been investing in the futures market and in a goat stud and a farm. And Centrepoint's also got its hooks into the Amac abortion clinic over in the city. Well, there are other ways. In any, any place you happen to find yourself, find, find yourself, but it's a matter of being in the previous episode, we heard from Renee and also from Angie, two sisters who arrived at Centrepoint in 1985. That's the same year that Barry reads this book about children and sex. Now, though, I'd like to introduce you to another former child of Centrepoint. I tried to be a good kid and then at one point I stopped giving a fuck. This is Nate. Oh, I'm Nate. Centrepoint used to call me Nat. Nate is a few years younger than Renee, and his family arrived a bit later than hers. He's not 100% on the dates. It's really, really hazy. Recently, we visited Nate at his home south of Auckland. He used to drive trucks for a living, but injured his back a while ago. And now I sit on my ass with a permanent injury, so <laughs> I tend to carve things and try and keep myself busy being creative. For Nate's family, as for Renee's, Centrepoint was partly a place of refuge from a troubled and precarious past. Dad was doing the best he could. He had no money. There was times we were really hungry. They visited Centrepoint for a while, but then it became a formal thing. Nate wasn't keen at first. The place felt alien, and the other kids weren't very welcoming. I can recall the night Dad told us we were going to be members. We were waiting. It was dark. We were playing on a trampoline outside the meeting, and Dad came out and told us, and I lost my shit at it. We did not want to be there. But he got used to it. Yeah, we did eventually. I mean, kids adapt. You know, they're long enough, you become part of the crew. Nate says the adults seems caught up in their own business. He wouldn't see his dad for days on end. 
But like Renee, he had a lot of fun in spite of, and partly because of, the lack of adult supervision. We had adventures together. We had this big bush go up to the top of the lookout and camp out up there. You know, it was raining and slide, big mudslide down into the creek. and We had a lot of good times. Like Renee, he remembers that the commune made real efforts to make things fun for kids. Not long after they joined, his father told him they were off to see Pink Floyd at Western Springs. Um, fuck, I was over the moon. It was awesome. Big, big brown centre point bus with all the hippies. And I went to Pink Floyd at Western Springs and had a joint and a beer. <laughs> and what age were you? Nine, I think. I don't remember the exact year. <laughs> Quick fact check, Pink Floyd came to Auckland in 1988 and Nate was born in 77, so he would have been 11-ish. But anyway. Great fun. I remember watching the dogs come out of this big round laser screen and the big pink pig in the giant bed. <laughs> I remember the entire concert. It was beautiful, amazing. And living at Santa Point, any concert, we went. We didn't have tickets. We jumped the fence. U2, Metallica, um, ACDC several times. Um, so, yeah, music was a massive part of Santa Point. There was one resident on the commune who had a little studio and he'd strung up speakers throughout the trees. So as the kids went about their adventures... And there was music playing in the background, like living in a movie. Like if you watch a movie, there's always background music. We kind of lived like that, it was kind of cool. So yeah, kids making their own fun, running a bit wild. You can see the parallels with Renee. But there are a couple of things Nate witnessed that we think are especially telling moments in the Centrepoint story. And they're things that, as best we can tell, have never been reported before. We'll get to Nate's stories, but before that, we need to tell you a bit more about what was happening to Centrepoint on a larger scale. Because things are about to get quite messy. That's coming up. Let a Hi, I'm Michael Wright, host of Stuff's podcast, The Long Read. The Long Read features audio versions of Stuff's best long-form journalism. If you don't have time to read the big stories or you'd just prefer to listen to them instead, this is the podcast for you. Each week we showcase a different feature from the world of crime, sport, history, culture and more, written by New Zealand's best journalists. And you get to hear from those journalists about how they got the story and how it came to life. So for your weekly dose of long form, subscribe to The Long Read from Stuff, wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy. Remember how Bert Potter instructed Dave the money man to invest some of Centrepoint's money, like 130 grand on the futures market? He would invest it in futures. Plus a breeding stud for Angora goats and a 600-acre farm. And for a while he was putting up big reports on the notice board about how much he was making. But then... Slowly they stopped going up. The reason Bert stopped posting updates about his investment prowess? Well, in late 1987, something happened. Faster than a skydiver without a parachute. Law of gravity hit Wall Street today like and financial markets around the world, for that matter. Stock markets crashed all over the world. I was near the end of my last year of school, and I distinctly remember one of my teachers coming into our class the next morning with a slightly dazed look on her face and telling us that she and her husband had just lost their savings, tens of thousands of dollars, overnight. 
In New Zealand, which had an especially deregulated system, the market collapse was more extreme than just about anywhere else. At its low point, the stock market had lost almost two-thirds of its value. Businesses folded, investments and financial dreams evaporated. Centrepoint ended up losing $125,000 on the futures market. The value of Angora goats fell off a cliff, and when they finally sold the stud and the farm a few years later, the total loss was $1.4 million. It looked like Bert was about as good at picking the market as he was at using a chainsaw. Barry says that once she learned how much money Bert had lost, she challenged him directly. So I, I went to Bert and said, right, you shouldn't be involved in the money. The trustee said you shouldn't be involved in the money. She wanted a new system where Centrepoint's finances would be managed more carefully. So I want a committee of six um, handling different aspects of the money. So it's shared around and this is my plan. Mousy Barry was learning to roar. Bert bit back. Well, then I just got the whole tirade of what was wrong with me and what was dysfunctional about me. But Barry stood her ground. In the end, Bert blurted, all right, then do it, never believing she actually would. So she took this new financial structure to one of the community meetings, told everyone Bert wanted it, even though she knew he didn't really, and got it passed. Now, when Barry told us about this, it helped me get my head around something I hadn't quite understood before the very strange version of democracy that operated at Centrepoint. So, in general, what Bert wanted, Bert got. He was the guru. As Robert put it, If Bert said that car was white, that car would be white. In fact, if you wanted to get your way at Centrepoint, all you had to do was say the magic words, Bert says, and people would suddenly agree with you. But at the same time, community decisions were made by full consensus in long meetings that sometimes only ended because the last person disagreeing had literally fallen asleep on their cushion. Generally, Bert didn't attend those meetings. Instead, he'd send a stooge, make sure one of his trusted cronies was there to veto anything he didn't want. But Barry reckons this time Bert hadn't sent a stooge because he hadn't taken her threats about setting up a new finance system seriously. But, and this is the bit that I find so curious given how much power Bert had, Once Barry's plan had passed the meeting, Bert actually couldn't reverse it. He had a small tantrum about it. He just really ripped into me. What a bad community person, what a bad lover, what a bad mother, what a bad everything. And then had an even bigger, more public tantrum about it. The next thing he did was call the whole community together for the next meeting. Then he just delivered this tirade to the community about how could we have voted for this. None of us were spiritual enough for him and he was... He was disappointed in everyone and he was going to move up to a separate house up the hill on an adjoining property owned by Centrepoint. Anyone spiritual enough could come and visit him there. He would come down for the Monday night meetings, but otherwise... Bert's new pad was known as the Gills Road House. Not long after he moved there, Bert's son John and John's partner Felicity moved into a house truck parked next to the Gills Road House. What happened next is a matter of interpretation. Bert later claimed that the move to the Gills Road house was stage three of a four-phase strategy which was all about the commune members achieving a greater sense of their own responsibility. Barry says it was much simpler than that. 
Bird's financial screw-up on the stock market had undermined his authority. He was losing control and losing respect, so he retreated to lick his wounds. Barry reckons this was a moment when the whole community could have fallen apart because the guru was off having a sulk. So now he was casting about, looking for new ways to put himself back at the centre of things. And as we'll see, he would find a way. Anyway, whichever version of events you buy, the power balance at centre point was shifting. The stock market disaster and Bert's freakout, it's all pretty dramatic, but for most of the commune, life carries on in much the same way as ever. And not long after Bert's move to the Gills Road house, a new person arrives at the community. A single man rather than a part of a family, which wasn't all that uncommon. We're going to call this guy Benji. And remember I said there are a couple of big moments that Nate can describe. Well, this is the first of them. During this interview with Nate, we were still using the guy's real name, which is why you'll hear a bleep. So, there's this guy, who who turned up in Centrepoint in late 1989. So, what was he like at first? He was weird. I never really liked the dude, but he was there, and he did a lot of cool stuff with us. After Space Invaders, and I know this is a big call, the most significant cultural product of the 1980s was arguably Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And when Benji turned up in 1989... This guy came in, he painted the turtles on the side of a container and put cushions and all sorts of stuff inside it. Logically enough, this cool new hangout for kids was known as the Turtle Hut. Benji also took kids on trips outside the community. He took us out to Devonport Tunnels and we would have egg and paint wars through the tunnels. Renee, a few years older than Nate, also has vivid memories of those trips to Devonport with Benji. We'd do things like take two car loads and every red light or giveaway sign would stop and we'd swap cars, even drivers. It was the coolest game. and We'd all run, quick, run, jump, and you'd swap seats and you'd swap cars and it was so fun. Oh, he must have been mid-twenties, close to 30, covered in tattoos. So he was this dude who turned up and he was a lot of fun. But... But yeah, there was something off with him, always. Really good with kids, but my creep radar was well and truly on. And then... I just remember waking up in the morning with this dude's hand between my legs. Nate wakes up, and there's Benji with his hand between Nate's legs. Not right. And he'd turn up in the mornings with... Early, early morning. Waking you up like that and then giving you um, fruit bread. Fruit bread was a bit of a treat. You had to be up early to get any before the kitchen ran out. But he would get us up out of bed that way. Nate said that Benji did this to him just once. But from then on, Nate was keeping an eye out and he saw that Benji was doing things to other kids. Remember the turtle hut? It was the turtle hut. Right. Inside which he played games with children one of which is called Milk the Cow. You only need to imagine what that means. Nate would try to stop him. I would do as much as I possibly could to disrupt that. I would slam on the side of the hut. I would call him a pedo fuck. I would yell at it on my voice and disrupt it as much as I possibly could. Yet no one listened to me. And what sort of ages are the kids that he'd taken to the turtle hut? I've seen children as young as seven, maybe younger, up until other kids my age. Was it always boys that he'd take to the hut? Yeah, I never saw any girls. It was always boys. 
Yeah, I saw things. I saw what he did to people. It stopped between me and him, thank God. But it carried on right in front of me, and that was really hard to handle. And I didn't know what to do with that at all. Did you feel there was anyone you could tell? Hell no. Nate didn't feel he could tell anyone. But eventually, Benji sexually assaulted a boy who did tell. I know that he tried it on the wrong boy, and uh, that boy made a noise, and he was taken away. And he was never seen there again. When they found out and they got rid of him, I was so happy. I was so goddamn happy, and I thought they'd taken him away and killed him. Okay, they didn't kill Benji. But everything else Nate has just said stacks up. We know because one day we were talking with Barry and she started talking about the same thing. Yeah, Benji arrives, and yeah... He was just absolutely brilliant in playing with the children, setting up involved games, going into the bush, building huts. And then stories start coming in about sexual interference, and one parent, whose boy has been assaulted by Benji, brings the issue to a community meeting. This parent is furious. Wanted him gone right now. At this point... Some places might have called the police, but that wasn't the centre point way. All the same, Benji was dealt with. A specialised course for people like Benji was found and... He was moved out to stay with friends and, and he agreed to do that quite lengthy course with them who were professionally trained people. We're not going to identify the parent who raised the alarm and got Benji ejected as that would identify the son, but we've been in touch with the parent and they confirmed the story. We asked the parent if they had any idea about what happened to Benji after that, and they said they didn't. We've made efforts of our own to track down Benji. We've found an image of him and a few other details. But like I said, Centrepoint never involved the police, and we've not found any media coverage of these allegations. Also, the name he used at Centrepoint, not Benji obviously, is extremely common, and we've got nowhere. Even though the story of the alleged paedophile who predated on boys at Centrepoint around 1989 hasn't been reported before, we've gradually realised that it's common knowledge among people who were at Centrepoint at the time. Also, this. About halfway through reporting this podcast, I got a call out of the blue from someone. I don't know his name, and he didn't want to be recorded, but the reason he was calling was that he'd heard we were researching Centrepoint and figured I might know something that he wanted to know. Is Benji still alive? Because Benji abused him, and if Benji's still alive, this guy's been thinking recently that he'd like to see him go to jail. I said I didn't know if Benji was alive or not. It was something I'd been wanting to know myself. And the caller said, well, if you do find out, let me know. Nate believes Benji was fresh out of jail when he arrived at Centrepoint, and he knows that... He told us. Ah. And it was clear that he was all over him with jail tax. This is curious. When Benji arrived at Centrepoint, he told other adults that he'd recently been in a seminary. So maybe saying he'd been studying to be a priest was a sort of cover story for actually having been in jail. Or maybe he'd been to jail and in a seminary. Producer Eugene and I float the idea with Nate. Who gives a shit who and where he was and yeah. where he came from? He, he was wrong. Yeah. Do you know what he was in... Did he tell you what he was in jail for? No, I don't know. We don't know. 
and the tattoos were clearly jail tattoos. There's no, no denying that. Do you remember any of the tats? Like this way up on his cock. <laughs> How's that? Okay. As clear as fuck as that. <laughs> he had lots of tattoos, but that one was pretty obvious. Yeah, there were other tats, but Nate knows about that one because... This is a guy who hung around with little kids and he was naked in the spa pool while we all had shorts on, you know. And no one thought there was anything wrong with that. So... For Nate, the shocking thing about the Benji saga is that this man had the opportunity to molest boys in the first place. They just... No one seemed to notice. This dude turned up. Who was, everyone thought, oh, he's a really cool guy. He's looking after the kids. What parent does that? Who lets this strange guy take a bunch of children off to Devonport? Here's the van in the case. Off you go, mate. It's almost like saying, you know, hey, shark, come here. I've got some fresh meat for you. Off you go and have a nice time. But for me, the shock here is a slightly different one. This is a situation where an adult at Centrepoint sexually assaults a child and the community agrees it's a very bad thing and swiftly solves the problem by booting the offender out. I can't help thinking, why Benji? It's not like he was the only adult who sexually assaulted children at Centrepoint. Why did he get the boot? And more importantly, why didn't that happen more often? Because if it had, the story of Centrepoint might have turned out very, very differently. Barry's relationship with her husband John, the ceramic artist, was always complicated. The strains of open relationships didn't help. Eventually, the marriage ended. came a point where um, we were at the breaking up point um, but he said well I'm, you know I've arranged this with this 20 year old down in the pottery a threesome come and join us I suppose John was trying something and so I sort of was in this threesome and I just thought I don't want to be here and I just I just left my husband with this young thing in her 20s and I went down to the swimming pool and I was just swimming up and down looking at the escarpment and the bush and just going I feel absolutely nothing I wasn't traumatised with all the jealousy and then I went maybe I've enlightened now and I was swimming (laughs) backwards and forwards and I went Actually, no, this is not enlightenment. I am just numb and I'm over it. I just can't do this anymore. And so, yeah, we kind of split up after that. John wrote about the end of the marriage in an article for the Centrepoint magazine in February 1988. John described his own sense of loss and his pain at seeing Barry move on. And just so you know, Barry had quit editing that magazine six months earlier. She passed the job on to another member. The edition after that, issue 32, was devoted to articles about Centrepoint's 10th anniversary. There are articles by Pioneer members reflecting on the Commune's wonderful decade. 
Former GP and one-time missionary Keith reckons the commune is a, quote, living, growing organism. A piece by Margie, Bert's wife, is illustrated with an old photo of her holding the wooden cross which, notoriously, Bert once asked her to carry around the commune back in the early years as one of his therapeutic tasks. And Barry contributes a piece of memoir that ends with her saying, I am gradually owning my own wisdom and power, which kind of sounds like a bog-standard centrepoint cliché, but which, with the benefit of hindsight, is rather more interesting than it probably seemed at the time. Because change was coming to Centrepoint. In that 10th anniversary magazine, there's also a piece about Bert moving up to the Gills Road house. The magazine piece is brief. It describes Bert as the guru on the hill and says he's been planning the move for some time. But Barry, remember, says there was much more to it than that. She says that after Bert's embarrassing financial stumbles and loss of face, he was desperately looking for something that would pull the community back into his orbit. And as luck would have it, something came along at just the right time. 3,4-methylene-dioxymethamphetamine. You might know it by the name MDMA, or ecstasy, or E, or even, I've started so I'll finish, caps, eckies, pingers, bickers, flippers, or molly. We'll just call it ecstasy from here. Anyway, ecstasy was developed in 1912 by the drug company Merck, but for some reason it took a good 70 years to become a seriously popular and illegal dance drug, usually consumed alongside sounds vaguely resembling what you're hearing now. And in the late 1980s, ecstasy reached New Zealand. Bert Potter had always been a bit interested in drugs. The hallucinogenic LSD, especially, was a good fit with the mind-expanding ethos of the human potential movement and the Esalen Institute that he'd visited all those years earlier. But from the beginning of Centrepoint, people repeatedly claimed that the commune actually wasn't all that druggy. Bert said it during that open day we heard back in episode one. We have no drugs in the community at all. Uh, very few people drink. Only one person smokes fairly regularly and then fairly lightly. Of course, we don't need to believe so Bert. But here's TV journalist Philip Alpers talking about what he was seeing in 1984. Drugs were completely prohibited. Alcohol was prohibited. There was almost certainly some dope being smoked in the back paddock. But it wasn't done publicly. And here's Peter Calder, the retired journalist we met in the previous episode, talking about how things looked during his time living there. That's 1985. Back then... My sense is that drugs were pretty much frowned on. But now, as the decade storms to an end, all that is changing, and fast. Remember Barbara, the member who loved therapy and joined Centrepoint as a single mum? It's possible that she played a part in the arrival of ecstasy at the commune. I think I introduced ecstasy to the community in that... For legal reasons, we've beeped this person, but suffice to say they were from outside the community. Gave me two capsules, told me that it had been used for couples therapy in the States, that it was really good, and he also gave some to Bert. So I think that's how the ecstasy arrived. Whatever the trigger, Barry says that very soon after Bert packed a sulk and headed up the hill to the Gills Road house... Next thing we were hearing... There was ecstasy being taken and special people up at the house were trying it. Then he came down and said he had enough of this to gift a loving experience to the community 
for everyone to be part of it. For most users, ecstasy is basically a party drug. Pop a pill, get all touchy-feely and emotionally engaged with the people around you and maybe dance to bass-heavy music till way past your usual bedtime. But Bert was saying it could be a sort of adjunct to the group therapy they were already doing. The loved-up feeling you got from the drug was a shortcut to all that getting in touch with your loving that the community had been banging on about for a decade. But that wasn't all. Bert also rediscovered his enthusiasm for LSD. And as luck would have it, Centrepoint's goat farm turned out to be a great place to collect ergot. That's a mould that grows wild on grasses and which can be used to make LSD. So all of a sudden, Centrepoint became a hive of drug experimentation, mostly E and LSD, with Bert handing out the goodies. Barry vividly remembers the first mass ecstasy-taking event up at Bert's house. It was only for members, so visitors were to mind the children. We all went up the hill in the dark, sort of visually quite classic, walking up the hill through the nursery, past the water tanks, and this house was way up on the hill with all the lights blazing, (laughs) and people walking in groups on the way up. And then he went round, he gave everybody and watched everybody swallow their pill. So that all took a while um, and then sat back and then um, I was one of the last ones to get my pills. Barry's recent squabbles with Bird had left her feeling slightly isolated from some members. I'd often been a bit on the edge in the community observing, but I wasn't under attack, so this was a pretty uncomfortable place to be. And while the other people who'd taken a pill seemed to be having fun, she was just sitting there, grinding her teeth from the early effects of the drug and wondering when the good feelings would start. The ones that got it early were starting to go, Oh, Bert, I think you're wonderful. And one guy got up on his feet, Bert, I love you. But I was one of the last ones, so it hadn't taken hold on me. So I thought, oh my God, you know, I'm going to be the only one out on the edge again. But then... It sort of took over. And and so I don't know what would have happened if he hadn't got ecstasy, because that was how he pulled all the community in again. Ecstasy is very euphoric but very mindless and so all the critique and questionings just went and just us oh we love everybody Bert's generosity with the drugs took various forms pills were given to couples with the intention of helping them resolve a relationship problem families adults and teens were encouraged to take ecstasy together as therapy none of this illegal activity was getting mentioned in the Centrepoint magazine of course but If you look closely, you can find the occasional clue. One adult member writes a short piece about losing his fear of loving and accepting other people's loving. But then he adds that he's made huge progress ever since, quote, an ecstatic family meeting about three months ago. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Yeah, we get it. Barbara has fond memories of communal LSD trips from around this time. It would start with a list on the notice board of who'd been invited up to Bert's house. And you'd go in the morning. There's a big space and one whole wall was a mirror. Take the LSD. There'd be bits of nice fruit to nibble on. 
this is adults, so you'd see someone you were drawn to talking with or sitting with or being with or having sex with or whatever. It's very hard to describe an LSD trip, which you'll know if you've ever had one. But I found it absolutely fascinating. I would be sitting with someone watching their face turn into the face of a witch or an eagle or a monster or something. And then as you came down from the trip, someone would always put opera on the sound system. I have retained an absolute love of the opera that I heard. And then... People down in the community would bring some very, very good food up. In the early evening, there'd be a van would arrive and food would be put out and people would be ready for it. And then the aftermath was dancing, usually, you know, just danced and danced. And eventually toddled off back and went to bed. So that was the LSD. Another big moment was a large-scale gathering at the Glade, that beautiful grassy clearing in the middle of the Centrepoint bush. This was in late 1988. About 130 people, adults and teenagers alike, took ecstasy together. And then there was ketamine. Centrepoint had access to the drug because of the goat farm. Ketamine can be used as a goat anaesthetic, and it's given as an injection. It's also a powerful psychedelic. Some members experimented with mixing things up. Ketamine with ecstasy, ketamine with LSD. It was a time of high excitement in the community. I had lived outside the law by being somebody who took LSD before I ever went there. I was happy to be outside the law in that way. And these drug adventures weren't exactly top secret. Peter, who had lived at Centrepoint in 1985 when it seemed pretty drug-free, returned for a therapy session in the late 80s and was given ecstasy by Bert as part of that session. And that was up in that house, yeah. Whether or not we went there with an expectation of taking drugs, I don't know, but I was perfectly open to the idea. I mean, I'd used hallucinogenic drugs before that, you know, so I didn't really have a problem with it. But some people did have a problem with Centrepoint's sudden enthusiasm for drugs. Across the Harbour Bridge at Auckland Central, the police drug squad had a new sergeant, Ray Van Bainen. You'll remember he was one of those cops, Dean Thomas was the other one, who'd been looking into Centrepoint years earlier. The cops who were gutted when Bert Potter had a cosy tea and bickies with their superior and their investigations were suddenly shut down. For a while, it had gone quiet. But since then, over the years, Ray had started hearing things again from people at Centrepoint and people who'd left Centrepoint. People who really had a problem with what was going on at Centrepoint. And now there was no one above Ray in the ranks who liked to take tea with Bert. Also, the drug squad had a lot more independence. They worked across the whole region. Uh, and as a detective sergeant, I had the authority to decide what cases we would investigate. So investigate he did. And what he found made him think it might be time to get back over to Albany and pay a visit to Herbert Thomas Potter. I looked into the living room and I saw one of my flatmates smash a bottle and shove it into the face of someone. When I come home, (laughs) I want a big extravaganza of drugs and then we could get LSD out to the gangs. I didn't know what was going to be said. I really hoped I could lie without lying. (laughs) 
That was episode 7 of The Commune, a Stuff production. It was researched, written and produced by Eugene Bingham and me, Adam Dudding. Mixing by Andrew McDowell at Digicake, music by Audio Network. For more information about the show, head to stuff.co.nz slash the commune.